This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. on prison escapes which (laughs) is funny because as concrete of a subject as that is (laughs) the data is very scarce (laughs) well i so i just started with that list so that you could see what the famous ones were and there's only one famous one i wanted to cover but the rest of them are bonkers. Well, and so I went through and I was trying to look, right? And so I started looking at the statistics and like, yeah, there's a lot of people that escape most of the time though. Deliberately hidden. That's the reason I'm covering it. They're actually deliberately not released by the Department of Justice. Oh, the numbers you mean. Right. Well, yeah, because it makes them look bad. No, it's not even that. It's um, it's actually because so the okay, yes, it makes them look bad, but that's not how they get away with not releasing them. The way that they get away with not releasing them is so that they don't have to reveal certain work practices that they consider to be confidential. So, but it's the government. Uh, okay, federal courts don't have cameras in them. I. I, I'm not making the connection between not having to release the data and to maintain confidentiality. Well, so, okay. It's not to maintain confidentiality. It's okay. It's like this. We have an open investigation. We can't give you that information at this time. Right. So, but they did like, they have gone as far as to say they actually use national security in one of the instances in one of the cases that we're going to get to about this. Cause now I've hit record. So, um, I guess we're doing prisoners first. Okay. What started this off for me was back when you and I, we weren't doing Israel keys. We like, we hadn't thought of anything. We used to go through the old versions of like NamUs. Do you remember like when it was like find the missing and stuff like that? And at some point we like both first realized that we looked at the website and I don't know. I don't remember when that was, but it was, there was this one case you and I were talking about. It was, this is so many years ago when I say this, you were 
looking at a girl in West Virginia that had been found by mushroom hunters. Do you remember this case that you like? Yeah. Do you remember this time when you were looking at that? Yeah, it would have been like right when Namus became a thing. Yeah. So when you were doing that, I realized I wasn't the only one. And at some point in the future, I was like scrolling through, I don't know what, like NBC, ABC. And they had like this Christmas special that wasn't really a Christmas special, but it was inmates who had escaped, who had never been found again. And, you know, when I saw it, it was like, you know, it, it sort of indicated that there were only seven inmates that had never been found. A couple of things happened for me there. First of all, I didn't believe that number. It, and it turns out that, like, the person just had a slip of the tongue and they corrected it later in the broadcast. But they were talking about seven inmates who had never been found. But it wasn't that, like, only seven inmates had never been found. So I started going, like back in time to find like the furthest ones back that I could. But here's the other thing that happened. I started wondering about, you know, we go down this path of like the unreported missing. In my head, like a prisoner should be the opposite of that. Like if a prisoner goes missing, at least today, they should like their statistics should be an NCIC as a as both an escapee and a fugitive from justice, but also as a missing person. Because I cannot think of a more likely person to match to an unidentified body in a weird situation than a prisoner escapee. Because they're like by design on the run and not probably like they're already in a dangerous situation, particularly when it's like a group of escapees. Well, the majority of the information I was looking at, it wasn't hitting that last uh, requirement where they hadn't been uh, recovered or found or recaptured or however you want to say it. Uh And so that's where I was running into problems. And then when I was looking at the tiny little bit of statistical data I could find, um, there was a report done in 2005, but it use data from like 1998, 1999. So it still isn't current, right? Right. But what I found was uh, a larger number you would find that indicates like how many prison escapees there are. They include everything. Like even people who were like on work detail and like didn't come back or whatever. Yeah, they just kind of wander off. So it's not like this big dramatic escape, right? Yeah. Um, and so that got confusing too, because those are less interesting to me. Plus, like, people should be paying more attention than that, don't you think? <laughs> <Than just to laughs> I mean, generally speaking, yes. Walk away. But, um, you know, overall, like, uh, a lot of the people that escape, they're not like super violent uh, criminals, right? Yeah. Some of them are, but. Uh, but then for the most part, uh, the confusion in my research came from like not being able to find that many that hadn't been caught. Uh, and see, okay, you, there's a difference between hadn't been caught and like it's reported that they're not caught yet. And there's, there's what I found was there were a lot of people that are not in that famous like 
I, and I'm just going to call it the top 20. And that includes like what you were saying, like Alcatraz in the 1960s. Um, you know, there's this one guy in New York that's talked about a lot who uh, escaped during the 90s. Um, there was uh, a death penalty guy that got out in 1990. We're going to talk about like I'm going to talk about some of those cases, but those aren't the super interesting ones just personally to me. Like, OK, here's a case of a guy that like probably is like the worst of the worst, you know, because Ted Bundy was also a prison escapee, but uh, clearly he did not, he did not uh, get away with it. He um, escaped twice. Yeah, he escaped twice uh, and very interesting escapes both time. Although one is a prison escape in my, or jail escape in my opinion. And the other one is more of a courthouse I- escape. He was in custody and then he was not in custody. So it yeah, still you're escape. right. You're right. It's an escape. <laughs> Um, there was this guy named Curtis Ray Watson, and he was an inmate at the West Tennessee uh, State Penitentiary. And on the morning of August 7th, 2019, he was on a work detail outside the residence of a, a prison official there named Deborah Johnson. In the afternoon of August 7th, 2019, Deborah Johnson was found strangled and Watson had disappeared. Uh, Watson had been serving a 15-year sentence for aggravated kidnapping when he did this. So he escaped the prison grounds in Henning, Tennessee. Uh, and how do you think he did that, if you were to take a wild guess? I assume whoever that was that was found strangled helped him. Uh, no, she was a, she didn't have anything to do with it. He was just working there. It, it's, it gets his, the story gets bad. Uh, the, the funny part of the story is that he escaped her residence on a tractor. Like, like he rode away on a tractor. He killed her and left. Yeah. So law enforcement released images of his tattoos specifically because they were thinking, uh, he would probably change his appearance pretty quickly. And a local there spotted the escaped inmate going through his yard on a home surveillance camera. And so there was a four day manhunt, but within hours of him being spotted on the home surveillance camera, uh, Watson was arrested. Curtis Ray Watson, Watson was arrested. Now his story gets like terrible because so that all happens in August of 2019. Like he escapes and then he's caught. Well, in June of 2021, um, he ended up waiving his right to a jury trial, uh, Curtis Watson did, in relation to the escape and also to the murder of the prison administrator. So he ends up indicted on 15 criminal counts in both the prison escape uh, and the rape and murder of Deborah Johnson, who was a Tennessee Department of Corrections administrator. He pleads guilty to nine counts, including felony murder and perpetration of rape for strangling her while he was raping her. Um, He ends up sentenced to life in prison without parole, whereas before he had been serving a 15-year sentence. Uh, And the judge even let him talk at his hearing. According to Action News 5, some of his statement was uh, that he just wanted to apologize to everybody, to the Johnson family and to the state of Tennessee and all the officers at the penitentiary. He said, please forgive me for everything I've done. Now, Deborah Johnson's daughter, who's Dr. Uh, Shanae Johnson, she spoke about Watson's apology after the hearing. And she said, I can't say I necessarily accept his apology. That's something that's going to take some time. I hope and pray that in the future I can definitely accept it wholeheartedly. But just right now, 
Uh, can I say that I accept it? I just can't say that I can. So this is like the daughter talking after the hearing. He also pled guilty to especially aggravated burglary, aggravated rape, felony escape, theft over $10,000, burglary, um, theft under $1,000, and aggravated criminal trespassing. Prosecutors say that Watson escaped from the prison before raping and murdering Johnson in her home on the prison grounds. He was on the run for, it's about five days total before he was eventually captured. And February 2020, the prosecutors had originally announced they were going to seek the death penalty against Watson. That's why he he pled to all that. He did, yeah. So at the time of his escape, he had been serving a 15-year sentence for especially aggravated kidnapping um, because he had confined his wife. And he had hit her with an aluminum baseball bat back in July of 2012. He was due to get out in – like the way it works over there time-wise, he would have gotten out in 2022 even though that's not the full sentence. He would have gotten out right at 10 years. But instead, in 2019, he uh, escaped and he made sure that he would never uh, get out. Uh, the Tennessee Department of Corrections released a statement after the guilty plea and they recounted the impact of uh, – Johnson's 38-year career with them and the countless lives she had impacted through leadership. Uh, Deborah loved being a part of the Tennessee Department of Correction, but more importantly, she loved the staff. She cared deeply about improving the lives of incarcerated people. She held the admiration and respect of her colleagues and was regarded as a knowledgeable professional who worked tirelessly to support and coach offenders in the rehabilitation. She was a devoted daughter, sister, mother, grandmother, and friend. Her absence is felt each day with our agency. That's words from uh, Commissioner Tony Parker over there. And uh, the the Department of Tennessee Department of Corrections said it will ensure that the court's orders were carried out um, and that Watson is housed according to policy and supervised appropriately because the court felt like some of uh, what happened there fell on lapses within uh, the DOC. I thought that was a sad case overall. Well, it is. And um, so Tennessee is a state that has something called a blue alert. And when this particular inmate uh, got out, um, it this is in 2019, it was the third time that a blue alert had been issued since they started using the system in 2011. So hmm. in eight years, this was only the third time it was used. Now it's, it's uh, it's structured similarly to like you know Amber Alerts where there's criteria that has to be met. Okay. And um, but just sort of going along with what I was getting at, like this was only the third time the state of Tennessee had had to do that in eight years. Well, that's interesting that they have that now. Yeah, they do. Um, so uh, according to the TBI, uh, the following must be met to activate a blue alert. Uh, One, a sworn law enforcement officer is killed, sustains life-threatening injuries, or the officer is missing in the line of duty under circumstances, warranting concern for the law enforcement officer's safety, and two, the suspect poses an imminent threat to public safety and law enforcement personnel. Three, a description of the offender or vehicle is available for statewide broadcast to the public and law enforcement 911 centers. Four, prior to activation, if the suspect's 
our suspect is or suspects are identified, the requesting agency will immediately place the suspect in the temporary felon file in the National Crime Information Center, NCIC, obtain felony warrants as soon as possible or within 24 hours, and enter the offender into NCIC. The head of any Tennessee law enforcement agency, colonel of the highway patrol, chief, sheriff, or their designee of the investigating law enforcement agency of jurisdiction requests the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation to activate the blue alert system. Huh. That's interesting that they do that. It is interesting. I don't know what the impact is, right? Like, it doesn't seem like this guy got very far. And... Uh, somebody found him on their camera, right? Yeah. Their home camera. Yeah, somebody found him on the home camera. I've I've, I've heard of I've heard of blue alerts before. I didn't know I didn't know how specific it was to Tennessee. I sort of thought it would be used more often, but it does look like it's sort of specific to Tennessee. It's interesting. I, I had never heard of that before. I've seen it mentioned in different articles that I read, like there was a blue alert issued, but it's like, it's one of those things I never, I just never drilled down on it to see what they were looking for there. Like I was thinking of this guy, Samuel Edwards. And I think I saw him back around the same time that Curtis Ray Watson was being caught. So Sam Edwards, he, I want to say exchanged gunfire or shot at a police officer over there. And I, I don't actually like, I, now that we're sitting here talking about that, I keep wondering like, did they ever catch him? <laughs> uh, this is another one, but he wasn't in custody. Like he was, uh, Sam Edwards was one that. Um, he was going to be in custody. Right. I think if, if I remember correctly earlier this year, he was shot and killed but it wasn't in Tennessee anymore. I want to, it was either, was it was he either Kentucky another or one of, Was he another one of the um, blue alerts in Tennessee? Yeah, yeah. He Sam Edwards. So Sam Edwards uh, was another one who was also called on home security. I saw earlier in the year this picture that people put out with a guy running with two machine guns, like from a backyard home security camera. And that's not horrifying. Like it, 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 if you look up, like uh, he's got it like a middle initial. I think that's either a Q or a Z. So if you look, if it's Samuel Q, um, if you look up Samuel Q. Edwards backyard like, gun, maybe you should find like a really crazy picture of him. He almost like the the frame they frozen on. He almost looks like he's skipping. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, I mean, and this is this is horrible because this, you know, this. Look up Samuel Q. Edwards uh, home security camera, maybe. Okay. I and I might be wrong. Maybe I'm misremembering it. Like, it may not be highly as as highly entertaining as I remember it to be, but I remember him like getting caught up in. I, I think it was Kentucky, maybe. But he has had a couple of blue alerts along the way that I don't really remember. Um, he kind of had that many. There's only been three total. Okay, he's had at least one blue alert in Tennessee. Wait, hold on. There we go. I found the picture. Okay. Did you find it? No. I mean, I'm looking, but no. Did you get a link from me just now? Yeah. Do you see the picture? 
I'm just copying and pasting for the sake of time. I'm just copying and pasting. <laughs> that that was what I was picturing when I was talking about it. So you've seen that picture before, yeah. Yeah, so that's um, that's Samuel Q. Edwards, according to, to that Twitter. When did his situation happen? I don't remember. Like at one point, I thought it was in twenty nineteen, but now I don't know. Like I would have to go through and read about him again because he's not he's not technically a. Um, yeah, you're correct. On June 29th, uh, 2022, the blue alert Samuel Q. Edwards was killed uh, in exchange of gunfire with an officer. Okay. I, I don't know when they issued that, but like, so he had shot or sh- shot at, a, a, I don't remember when, a, a, a Tennessee officer. He popped up for a long time. Like there was constantly, like I would get, you know, 10 press releases and he was like one of every 10 press releases where they were looking for him. So I think that might be in relation to what you were talking about with the blue alert thing. They just keep sending out the press releases to keep people aware of him. Right. Um, So uh, that was in Kentucky, apparently that he was shot and killed. Right. Yeah. That sounds right. Um, yeah, so he's deceased after a, a exchange of gunfire with Kentucky State Police in Louisville. So, yeah, that and just like happened over the summer. So that's sort of the opposite of escaping, I think. Um, but so the case that I wanted to talk about today, it does have a tie to Tennessee. That's why I was talking about these different Tennessee things here, but not a recent tie. And like, I don't get to do a lot of these like really old cases, but I wanted to do this one because. There's a there's a prison escape element to it. Now, they've all been found, but I still find the way that this all went down to be fascinating. Who we're talking about here is John Hunt Morgan. So John Hunt Morgan, for those of you who have never heard that name before, um, he is not like a typical criminal. He is technically a war criminal. He was born in Huntsville, Alabama. He was the eldest of 10 children. Um, the 10 children were all between Calvin and Henrietta Hunt Morgan. Uh, he was the uncle of a geneticist named Thomas Hunt Morgan, who was born in 1866, by the way. Uh, and he was the maternal grandson of John Wesley Hunt, who was a prominent business, businessman in uh, Lexington, Kentucky. And he was one of the first million, millionaires that were west of the Allegheny Mountains. He's also the brother of A.P. Hill. And I know A.P. Hill because I went to Fort A.P. Hill um, when I was uh, a Boy Scout many, many, many moons ago. Uh, A.P. Hill was a Confederate general who was killed in the American Civil War. Um, And he was the brother-in-law of Basil Duke, who was another uh, Confederate general. He was said to be a direct descendant of Revolutionary War General and Hero Daniel Morgan. Uh, Morgan never used his middle name of Hunt during the war. During the war, uh, it's something that people began to attach to him to distinguish him from other people named John Morgan uh, as a post-war appellation. So, the way that he ends up uh, on our radar is as he's growing up uh, on a farm outside of Lexington, Kentucky. He attends Transylvania College for two years. Um, He gets kicked out in 1844. So 1844 is what we're talking about. He is dueling with a fraternity brother, which means 
two people have picked up weapons against each other. So that's what they used to do for hazing in 1844. And in 1846, Morgan became a Freemason. He wanted to, uh, to have a military career, but the small size of the U.S. military at the time limited opportunities for officers' commissions. So he didn't want to just enlist he wanted to also be commissioned as an officer of the U.S. Army or the U.S. military, um, but specifically the Army, in 1846. It's a really long time ago. In 1846, Morgan enlisted with his brother Calvin and his uncle Alexander as a cavalry pri- private uh, with the U.S. Army, and this is during the Mexican-American War. So Mexican-American War was just an armed conflict between the U.S. and Mexico from 1846 to 1848. He ends up being elected second lieutenant, and he gets promoted to first lieutenant before even arriving in Mexico. So then in Mexico, he sees combat at the Battle of Buena Vista. Battle of Buena Vista takes place February 22nd and February 23rd of 1847. So on his return to Kentucky, he became a hemp manufacturer, And in 1848, he married a woman named Rebecca Gratz Bruce. She was the 18-year-old sister of one of his business partners. So in 1848, he's only 23 years old. He marries an 18-year-old girl. And after the death of John Wesley Hunt, his grandfather in 1849, his fortunes greatly improved. And his mother, Henrietta, she had begun to finance his business ventures. In 1853, his wife delivered a stillborn son, and she contacted what's known as milk leg. Um, It's a phlebitis related to a thrombus or an infection of a blood clot in a vein. So she ends up eventually having an amputation. They grew apart, and he begins to be known as a generous gambler and womanizer. He had at least one slave son, which is a very controversial thing today. Uh, the slave son's name was Sidney Morgan, and he was the biological grandfather of the American inventor Garrett Morgan. So Garrett Morgan, um, for those of you who may not know, he invented a three-position traffic signal. So he's not someone that we could live without. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I just want to point out, uh, just in case, uh, like a slave son would be um, that he had a baby with a slave that, that he, he owned. Kept. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, and the uh, American inventor, he was descended from that baby. From that slave son, yeah. Right. Which is... Like, I don't know how to, like, talk about that. It's a fact of this case, and it's a terrible thing. And Morgan, he remained interested in the military, and he raised a militia artillery company in 1852. Now, the state legislator disbanded it in 1854. But in 1857, with the rise of sectional tensions, Morgan founded a company called Lexington Rifles. He spent much of his free time drilling his men as an independent infantry. So raising a company means he got together a group of people and he got together all the supplies and he basically created his own little militia group. 
Yeah, like it's almost like he created his own army, but it's a small one. Like most other Kentuckians, uh, initially Morgan was not in support of seceding uh, with the secession from the United States. Immediately after Abraham Lincoln's election in in November of 1860, he wrote to his brother Thomas Hunt Morgan, who was a student at Kenyon College in northern Ohio. And he said in those letters, Our state will not, I hope, secede. I have no doubt, but Lincoln will make a good president. At least we ought to give him a fair trial. And then, if he commits some overt act, all the South will be a unit. By the following spring, Tom Morgan, who had also opposed Kentucky secession, had transferred home to the Kentucky Military Institute. He had begun to support the Confederacy. So he had left Ohio and he'd come down and basically he said, I'm going to be behind these guys. Just before the 4th of July, by way of a steamer from Louisville, Kentucky, he quietly left for Camp Boone, which was just across the Tennessee border. And he enlisted in the Kentucky State Guard. So John stayed at home in Lexington to tend to his troubled business and his ailing wife, Becky. But Becky died on July 21st of 1861. In September, Captain Morgan and his militia company went to Tennessee and they joined the Confederate States Army. Morgan soon raised the 2nd Kentucky Cavalry Regiment and became its colonel on April 4th of 1862. So he's just moving up through all of these ranks over the years. That's Um, a really interesting thing that um, I guess I never realized that that was part of how that happened. Which part? Like the way that he, um, he formed a group um, himself. And then it seems like there was a lot of stuff going on because of the conflict, uh, between, you know, uh, the different sides of the war. Civil right? war? Well, there's, yeah. And it, because it's, essentially they were disbanded at first because it was outlawed. That's what it seems like it was being said. So he had made this group of people that um, they were training, so to speak, but like they're not in the actual uh, military, right? It's just a right. private thing that he's done. And then as time goes forward and they're they're going more towards a battle, having the actual war, um, it they just fall right into place. Yeah, they do. It, it's actually pretty wild. Um, I they never knew that that's how that, that, that happened that way. Did you? Yeah. It, like So his, his is like a probably... Uh, about one fiftieth of what happened, like this, the way that he did this, you got to think there's like thirty-five to fifty groups similar to that. Um, sure. It depends on where you pick them up in history, because a lot of them had sort of sort of to meld together. Just from a historical perspective, it's fascinating to look at. It's also a terrible time because if, if we did that today and decided that like on either side doesn't like because technically it's hard to say it from the like perspective of the United States at that time. So you have the United States versus the Confederate States or the North, the which North versus, the the South. versus the South. Right. So no matter how you say it on both sides of that, there were terrible things happening, but some of the more terrible things, like if they were happening today on either side, we would look at them and be like, what the hell is going on? Right, but I don't. I, I maybe it's because we're so far removed from it. But like, 
there would be a problem with uh, anybody that I personally know, like starting up a militia. I would have an issue with that. Um, I. <laughs> it's weird that like so much of our history is steeped in this, and people don't understand like how crazy it was. Because so honestly, Morgan, the guy that we're talking about here, John Morgan, he's not super interested in like anything to do with slavery or secession. Obviously he, it, he's one of those guys that has some leadership skills and he has some business skills, but curiously he just sort of goes along with everything else. He's like, Oh, we're supposed to have slaves and I've been given these slaves. So I'll just keep these slaves, you know? And, and I don't know much about like his personal beliefs related to it, but he certainly didn't change it. And he even had slaves at this time. And as I previously mentioned, he had a slave son, which meant that he was also, no matter how you look at it, having some type of relationship or abusing a woman that he owned on paper. That, like, right there makes it all weird. But he's not necessarily on the side of, like, yeah, we should definitely be fighting the North. What he is is he's a guy who's just obsessed with the idea of the military. He's actually in the Army at one point. When, when he was in the Mexican-American War, he was a U.S army officer he starts out as a cavalry private and when like when he leaves uh i believe he left as a lieutenant so if you if you're leaving out of the u.s army as a first lieutenant that's um like that's a different way of life than what you suddenly have when you go back to kentucky but my point is that's the u.s army so now we have him in september of 1861 joining the Confederate States Army. He's not there because he believes in some kind of like big deal. Well, uh, we don't really know that. It, we just he know says that the, it. He says it. Okay. Well, I was just so, going to say, we just know that the story lends to the fact that he sort of had this uh, militia group together and they just went on over and joined. That's, that's what I was getting ready to say. Like, I honestly, like some of this, re and like, I'm not going to like go through the whole thing. I'm just going to say some of this reads like, Morgan just didn't have anything better to do than dream of being an officer in the military. And he was like, you know what? Now I'm Captain Morgan and I'm going down here uh, and I'm going to be the captain. And he did. So he goes and he raises what's known as the second Kentucky cavalry regiment, which is a Kentucky based um, part of the Confederate States army. So he becomes the Colonel of the second Kentucky cavalry regiment on April 4th of 1862. Now, while that's a, why that's a big deal is he ends up fighting in the Battle of Shiloh. It's one of the early battles uh, in southern Tennessee. And that is from April 6th uh, through the 7th of 1862. And inadvertently, because of his performance and his obsession with military and military leadership, he becomes a symbol to the secessionists in their hopes that Kentucky could be part of the Confederacy. So all he's really doing at that point is, and I'm going to be really polite about this, but I'm going to be blunt. He's playing war. Well, because I think the, a lot of people were that. Uh, yeah. He was specifically <laughs> tailored for this for some reason. I, I don't really know. I, it's a weird thing. Um, it doesn't seem like, I mean, these people wouldn't have been alive during the revolutionary war. Right. So it must have been like the lore that continued on from 
that. So this is almost this is almost a hundred years after the Revolutionary War. This right. is the eighteen sixties. Um, although they do compare Morgan to Francis Marion, who was a military officer who served in the Revolutionary War um, and was a, considered to be a really big deal in terms of how the British were handled by the U.S. forces at the time. And it's so weird for me to like attribute military terms to all of this because it would have looked very weird if you saw it. It would be like guys rolling down the street on horses with a cannon that they'd picked up. You know what I mean? It, it wouldn't look well, like the military marching in. Well, speci- and specifically the uh, Battle of Shiloh that you were talking about, um, that had to do with the states that hadn't uh, fully chosen their position Yes. Uh, the Confederate soldiers or the Confederate army or whatever, they were they were trying to move as far north as they could, while I imagine uh, the, the Union was pushing as far south as they could, right? Yeah, this is just, you know, in the early phases of war, it's not super heavy battles. It's just trying to sort of define the boundaries so right. that and you know what you need to take. <laughs> right, and so where Kentucky is and Tennessee, where they are um, – they were border states basically. So that's why his whole, um, his whole group, he's able to jump right in there because it's actually a point of contention as the war is starting. Yeah. So all throughout 1862, what ends up happening is exactly what you're describing. Um, there's push and pull back and forth across uh, the Tennessee, Kentucky line. And in his first Kentucky raid, Morgan in July 4th of, uh, on July 4th of 1862, he leaves Knoxville, Tennessee with, he takes 900 men with him and they end up sweeping through Kentucky and they sweep through the army of a United States, uh, army officer who had fought in the Seminole war and the Mexican, uh, American war and the American civil war. Uh, he ends up in the American civil war. Um, so, this guy is a major general. Um, now, supposedly Morgan reports back that they've captured 1,200 federal soldiers. He paroles them all, but he takes their horses. So they acquire hundreds of horses from these 1,200 soldiers. And they burn and destroy a massive quantity of their supplies. So at the time, technically... Kentucky was part of the Union military, if you want to call it that, the United States military. So they, President Lincoln starts getting notices that like they need help if they're going to hold Kentucky as a border rather than be taken, giving these Confederate States Army like a leg up. So in many ways, uh, Morgan shocks them. So he ends up basically... Uh, becoming a hero during this time. But also between July 4th of 1862, he goes from being Colonel Morgan to being Brigadier General Morgan on December 11th of 1862. Now, the promotion orders were not signed by President Davis until December 14th of 1862, but he had been operating that whole week as like the highest ranking official of the Confederate States Army. So on December 14th, 1862, which is a year and six months after his wife died, Becky, 
Um, he gets married to Maddie Reddy, who is the daughter of Tennessee United States representative at the time, Charles Reddy, and a cousin of William Haskell, who was also a, a congressman from Tennessee. Now, what they do in the next year, Morgan's men, uh, becomes a really big deal. They start out 1863 by planning operations to move them sort of higher up. They're hoping to divert Union troops and Union resources in conjunction with two operations that they're trying to pull off at the same time. And that is uh, an operation which is the siege of Vicksburg and then the Battle of Gettysburg, which is perhaps the most famous battle uh, in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, um, of the Civil War from July 1st to July 3rd of 1863. So this is summertime, and uh, Morgan sets off to cross the Ohio River. He has his men raid southern Indiana and Ohio, and that is a huge deal because it puts them deep in Union territory. Um, in Indiana, they met 450 local home guard in what was known as the Battle of Corridon on July 9th of 1863, 11 of the Confederates were killed and five of the home guard were killed. And then in July at Versailles, Indiana, while soldiers were raiding nearby militia and looting the county and city treasuries, and they were looting all the Masonic lodges, they were stealing everything they could get their hands on. Uh, one of the problems that came up was Morgan started to have some ethical issues. He was a Freemason, so when he knew that they were stealing the jewels from the local Masonic Lodge, he actually recovered the jewels and returned them to the lodge the following day. And I think he had some trouble from there on out, like figuring out what to do. Although he did have some more success. He had several more skirmishes and he captured and paroled thousands of Union soldiers, which is a really weird practice where you basically take everything from them, shame them and send them home. Um, his raid almost ended on July 19th at Buffington Island, Ohio. 700 of his men were captured that day while trying to cross the Ohio River into West Virginia. They had been intercepted by Union gunboats, but 300 of his men made it across. Most of Morgan's men that were captured that day, they spent the rest of the war in what was known as Camp Douglas, which was a prisoner of war camp that was established in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, it also had an extremely high death rate. Um, so most, most of the time, if you went to Camp Douglas, you did not leave. On July 26th, near Selineville, Ohio, Morgan and his exhausted, hungry, and saddle-sore soldiers were finally forced to surrender. The surrender site is marked with a massive rock and a plaque to this day. It was the farthest north that any uniformed Confederate troop penetrated during the war. So as much as it's a surrender, it's also a huge deal that Morgan got that deep into Union territory. And it never, it was never repeated uh, in the entire time. He was chastised for surrendering by some of his men, but overall he was sort of heralded as a, he as a hero. Here is where he comes into our Christmas episodes. On November 27th, Morgan and six of his officers, which included the gentleman known as Thomas Henry Hines, who is a Confederate uh, espionage expert. And honestly, 
Morgan and Hines, if they weren't Southerners, they would have the best action movie like framed around their lives for all of the weird things that Hines was able to pull off. He really was like uh, sort of a model for what we think of now as James Bond, but he was doing it during the Civil War and technically doing it for the wrong side. They end up on November 27th of 1863, escaping from their cells in the Ohio Penitentiary. They dig a tunnel from Hines' cell into the inner yard. They ascend a wall with a rope that's made from the the coverlets or the little quilts, little crappy thin quilts from their bunks and a bent poker iron. So what they do is they take all these quilts and they tie them into like a cartoon looking uh, rope. And they take a poker iron that has been bent over the fire and they use it like a grappling hook. So this is like, in my mind, it's like the most comical thing. I don't know how accurate all of this is. If it's if the story is accurate, considering how old it is, it is hilarious. And then shortly after midnight, Morgan and three of his officers end up boarding a train from the nearby Columbus train station. They arrive in Cincinnati that morning, and then Morgan and Hines jump from the train before reaching the depot, and they escape into Kentucky, and they hire a boat to take them across the Ohio River. From there, they have like the reverse of the Underground Railroad and they have the Southern sympathizers sort of uh, chariot ride they're going on. They make it to safety. They get back to the South. Now, the same day that Morgan escaped, his wife gave birth to a daughter who died shortly before Morgan returned home. So the North and the South... The press is trying to cover all of this, um, and they caused, like, this whole Morgan's Raid time period in 1863 caused, like, a lot of doubts as to whether the Union would win the war. But at the end of it all, the sort of, the press started to view it as something that had been, like I said, like, more like a plot of a movie or a show. Um, it was very showy, but ultimately... Uh, It didn't help that much, even though they were able to get so deep into Union territory. I guess we have to wrap him up, like, so that people know what happened to him later in life. So, obviously, the South loses the war. Uh, After his return from Ohio, Morgan was returned to active duty, but the men that he was assigned were not the same as the men who had died and who had been imprisoned along the way. He once again began raiding into Kentucky, but he couldn't get these men to live up to like the discipline that he had with his first command. And he was unwilling or unable to control them. So every time they went in to do open pillaging, uh, there were high casualty rates and he kept having to refill men from home. Uh, The raids of this second season were pretty much in direct opposition to the strategic situation in the border states, which because of how he had done the previous raid, the union had adjusted their own strategies and they were much better able to protect themselves from what he was doing. While he didn't have many new tricks, they knew all of his old tricks and the union military occupation in that region, they basically had progressed to the point that even 
like small groups of highly mobile raiders could no longer easily invade and, and steal and pillage from them. Uh, there was a lot of public outrage at Morgan's raid uh, across the Ohio R- River, which may have contributed to how all of this was going. And his last Kentucky raid was carried out on, in June of 1864. Uh, this is part of what is known as the Second Battle of Cynthiana, which was fought in Harrison County, Kentucky on June 11th and June 12th in 1864. But after winning a minor victory on June 11th against an inferior infantry unit in the engagement known as the Battle of Keller's Bridge, um, this is outside of town, basically, Morgan decided to take a chance the following day on another battle against a superior Union Mounted Forces unit that he knew was approaching. So effectively he was going to flank this massive uh, well-organized union uh, mounted unit that was coming in. And the result was a disaster for the Confederates. Basically it destroyed Morgan's uh, unit as a, as a cohesive force and only a couple of them escaped with their lives. Most of them ended up being captured. A couple of them escaped but that made them fugitives from justice. And that included John Morgan. And after this raid, it was revealed that it was unauthorized. So General Bragg, who had taken over while Morgan had been uh, incarcerated, he never trusted Morgan again because of some of the stuff that he had done in Ohio. And on August 22nd, 1864, nevertheless, Morgan was again placed in command of the Trans-Allegheny Department. So at the time, the Confederate forces in eastern Tennessee and southwestern Virginia were coming together to form like a pretty cohesive unit. So some Confederate authorities were quietly looking at uh, Morgan to possibly charge him with what's known as banditry, um, which would have led to his removal from command. Ultimately, they were trying to stop him from continuing these raids that cost him a lot of resources and a lot of people. Uh, nevertheless, he kept doing these raids. He aimed at a, a raid in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, it did not seem like that raid was going to work out. So instead, on September 4th of 1864, uh, he ends up getting a little karma. And that is when Union soldiers... Uh, surprise him in a raid on Greenville, Tennessee, which ironically Greenville had been named for Nathaniel Green, who was a revolutionary war hero. Um, And Greenville, Tennessee is the second oldest town in Tennessee. Uh, So Morgan, at this point, he was, I guess, getting up there in age for a soldier. Although he was born in 1825, he would have been 39. Um, He was attempting to get away when he was shot in the back and killed by Union cavalrymen. His burial was shortly before the birth of his second child, uh, another daughter. He, and he is, uh, he is buried in Lexington, Kentucky and Lexington Cemetery. So that's, this, that's our first prison escapee story. And it's sort of wrapped around a bunch of history stuff. And I know we don't get into like a lot of history stuff, but um, it, like, there's always like some fascinating stuff, and there's definitely a lot of crime in there, don't you think? 
Well, yeah, there is. And actually, I was thinking about it because, um, you know, we get all obsessed by, like, one murder or two murders, right? And, like, you have to admit, um, from our perspective, looking back, uh, this entire situation uh, was, it was futile. Like, it was like the Old West. Um, and, you know, a lot of lives uh, were unnecessarily lost. And this kind of sheds new light on it, though, because I didn't realize how much... Like, this guy was playing war, like you said. And he was doing things that were risky. And he was sacrificing his group because he was in control, right? Um, yeah. But the things that he was doing, while he did get, you know, pretty far north, it, it didn't matter. Like the only thing that happened was he, you know, it can be said that he got to that point, right? That's it. Yeah. But it, I feel like this looks really interesting because he would be, you know, he's responsible for a lot of deaths, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, while um, this is kind of war is, is held in a different light than crime, right? Uh, some of the stuff that was happening, it, it, there really isn't a whole lot of difference, right? If there was some sort of point to it, which, you know, obviously the Civil War had a point. It's just the extent and the, like, what, the way that this was being carried out, it it was futile. Uh, he proved it. But there's so much crime involved in that. Yeah, he was operating under a guy that's like known to be basically the worst general in the war. And I like, it's, it's even weird to like, look at how did he become that general, but the guy he's operating under is a guy named Braxton Bragg, who is like everything Braxton Bragg is doing is a war crime. Like from the jump. Well, the, the raid Morgan's raid, which is right. what we talked about. Yeah. Um, he had been specifically ordered by general Braxton Bragg not to cross that river Yeah, because there was information that the union forces had over 110,000 militia in yep. those States. And so like that wasn't for nothing, right? <laughs> they didn't order him not to cross the river for no reason. Like he was sending everybody into a death trap. Yeah, he was. But so he he was smart about it. What he did uh, in Indiana sort of showed how smart that he, he was. He sent Thomas Hines in with a group of 20 guys and they were posing as a union patrol that was on a secret mission. So what what they were trying to do there is they were trying to figure out if they could recruit another local group of guys playing army like they were they literally went in to try and get this group the copperheads which just sounds crazy but i'm telling you this was like make the most amazing limited series so these groups had no real allegiances but like heinz would go in there and like i said these like you know talented mr ripley james bond all rolled into one he goes in but like he finds out that like there's no support for them in Indiana. So while Morgan is dealing with the information from Bragg from above, he's also dealing with like what he's creating on the ground with the guys like Hines and Hines is made out to be a little bit of a superhero in all of this, but like realistically he just was too dumb to know to stop. 
Like he just liked the idea of everything. That's and, all that that's all that he was doing, I think. Like this this is gonna be fun, you know. Yeah, yeah. He was just absolutely like uh I'm gonna he, accomplish this, right? He he was looking for a way to have status. And honestly, he didn't even know what he was doing. But if you follow along with Heinz over the years, he spent a lot of time actually trying to get those guys back that were part of like Morgan's units. He tried to like help them escape. And then at one point in time, he was the subject of a massive manhunt because the legend says that Heinz was thought to have been John Wilkes Booth. And there's a period of time where he was mistaken for him. And in later years, there are a couple of images that um, I don't know if they're sketches or photographs, but he sort of looks a little bit like John Wilkes Booth, who obviously is, you know, one of the most famous assassins in history. And uh, he didn't die till he was till 1898. That fascinates me, by the way, that he lived that long. Because that means, so 1898, he would have been 60 years old. So if you go back 20, so he was in his 20s and 30s doing all of this work to basically be part of Morgan's raid. But he was so much more than just a part of that. Like this guy was like a really interesting spy. And honestly, I think if someone from the union had caught Heinz, like, well and good and offered him enough money, I totally think he would have done the exact same job going back the other way. I think that the majority of this, uh, now he's different, but the majority of the soldiers, they literally followed the flow of what was happening around them. And because the biggest differentiation between the union and the Confederacy was location, right? Um, just by sort of default. Now, you know, obviously the battle lies in those middle areas, like we were talking about um, with Kentucky and Tennessee, but, you know, people who lived above the the Mason-Dixon line, is that? Technically, yeah, technically the Mason-Dixon line is relevant. Uh, Because if you were above the Mason-Dixon line, you would by default, unless you, you know, specifically decided not to be, you would be part of the union, right? Right. And then if you're below it, by default, you would be part of the Confederacy, um, unless you specifically weren't, right? Um, well, the the line, the, the original Mason-Dixon line was much further north. But yeah, I mean, it's still that idea comes into play here depending on who well, you talk you were just saying that you felt like Heinz would probably have done the exact same job on the other side if somebody had recruited him. Absolutely. I feel like the soldiers involved in these situations, they would have done what they did with, you know, regardless of which side they were on. I don't know how many of these, these militia groups like were really fighting for the underlying principles as opposed to just like playing strategically army. playing war. Yeah, I mean, so you do have a real army on the Union side. It's you know, there's the the that's the United States military operating. But you're right, as it as the war goes on and as things get you know bigger and bigger outside of the Great Raid of 1863, you have a lot of soldiers who are not like this this war drags on for five years and it's not like a war today 
So you have a lot of soldiers replacing, you have a lot of people playing army replacing actual soldiers. Or it seems like you have people playing soldiers to begin with and they just keep dying and being replaced with more people playing soldiers. Yeah. The, the Southerners in this sense, they were really at a loss for people. Like, cause if you look at the peaks of both of the armies during the war, the U S army itself, the union army had a total of about two and a half million people come through, but the peak, the biggest size of its army was about 500 to 600,000 people. The, Southern Confederate Army, whatever, Southern States Army, um, it ha- it never got bigger than a million people total. But its peak of how many active people they had at one time was around 350,000. The difference is for the Union Army, that didn't include the guys playing soldier. For the Confederate Army, it was all the guys playing soldier. Now, some That's of those guys – Yeah, some of those guys were former military and some of those guys would have been part of the Union Army or the U.S. Army. But when things split and battles became real and people like John Morgan got into the fray, I think the weirdest part is, depending on where you were standing the day things happened, really de- that really determined which side of the war you were on. Exactly. It was like almost 100% pure uh, geography. Now, what's interesting is at some point you... Uh, when you were telling his story, you talk about him writing his brother in Ohio. Yeah. Right. And uh, I'm not exactly sure what he said, but it sounded like he could have been persuaded either way at that point. He said he would give Lincoln a, a, a fair uh, trial. There are like, I've read different allusions to the idea that the Emancipation Proclamation pissed him off. It sort of depends on like where you look at things in time. But the truth is guys like him, if you had offered them a paycheck and told them they can keep doing the same thing they do, like it doesn't matter what Lincoln said, really. I don't think he was heavily politically active, but back then, like people did not have as much to do to entertain themselves or keep them busy. I don't know how you want to say that, but like, you know, today we have all these different, today we have lots of hobbies. This guy's hobby was making army units. That's what he did for fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, from a, from a crime perspective, he was, he could be considered a little bit of a criminal. Oh, he's definitely, he was a good criminal too. I mean, he's interesting to me. And like, I, I am shocked that like, uh, that these stories don't get more attention. And I wonder if like, you know, they ever will because, I think it's still such a sore spot. Yeah. Um, because while it was a you know long time ago, it wasn't all that long ago. And no, there, there's a, there's sort of a fundamental misunderstanding um, or non-understanding, I think, of uh, you know the Civil War in general, right? I don't know. Yeah. I know that um, you know I'm from the South. Well. I consider it the South and there's a lot of people who are clueless about what it, you know, all that stuff really means in the South. You mean in the South? Yes. Yeah. It, uh, I don't, 
so I find it hard to get into those conversations with people. And I'll say it, I'll say it this way. Um, I, to a point, I fully empathize with certain things that were like done, particularly by the people that were sort of standing in a place and told to do a thing. But I don't, I don't really have enough of an understanding of how terrible it would have been to have like on the bad side of things where people were owning people like right there. I sort of check out because I'm like, how? Like, cause I, and I know that slavery still happens today, but when I look at that type of like sort of institutionally and governmentally condoned ownership of human beings, like, well, that's the like main point of the Civil I, War. I fall apart trying to explain to people who just want to tell me about heritage and like how industry black. and their yeah, and I'm just like, I can't. That's you know, the biggest at, thing for me is all the Confederate flags I see. Like, well, I I hear people yell both ways, like, why is everything so woke and why aren't we doing more? And I just look at stuff and I'm like, guys, people were owning people like with titles. Like cars, so these are going to be our Christmas episodes. What are we doing? Like, what, what, what all do you want me to do here for Christmas? Like, how many do you want to do? Whatever you want to do is cool with me, yo. So we're doing a bunch of Christmas episodes, and this is the first one that we're recording. It's a little weird that we threw in some history. I think it's crime related. Um, you know, we've gone sort of back and forth on how this part will work, but at the end of the day, what we really wanted to do was put together. A uh, series of episodes that would occur like over the holidays that people could listen to where, you know, if you're not out doing a lot of family stuff, because like we do our family stuff and then sort of like we have downtime. Like uh, I think people. that um, our 12 Days of Christmas last year was uh, received very well. People really enjoyed it. Yeah, it seems to be. I, I, actually, it seems to be some people's favorite thing. So that's why we're doing it again. Um, and we're, you know, recording this as we go because we just wanted to be, uh, sort of ahead of the game. But yeah, because of how we ended up having to do it last year, it was crazy, but maybe this year <laughs> slightly less crazy, but, um, yeah, it's nice to have like a sequence of, um, a series of things to listen to when you have some time. So I hope people are having good holidays. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at TrueCrimeXS or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at truecrimexs at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.truecrimexs.com. We'll see you next time.
Seven. 